Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Kitchen Garden Magazine podcast, your fortnightly fix of gardening features, advice and chat. Subscribe and follow us now to never miss an episode. You're listening to Kitchen Garden Magazine, the home of down-to-earth advice for those growing their own fruit and veg. This is the December audio edition. Coming up, in the greenhouse, Martin Fish harvests citrus, prepares the soil and clears autumn salads. Our top experts solve your gardening problems. Plus, your guide to common pests with Guy Barter. How to plan for a new fruit and veg garden and how we can all give our garden birds some TLC this winter. But first, jobs for the month. Tasks for your vegetable patch in December by Joyce Russell. Ten-minute jobs. Keep using leeks. Winter varieties of leek are pretty hardy, but they can turn to mush if buried under snow or exposed to sub-zero temperatures for several days. Lift and use them as needed so you don't waste any. Weed garlic rows. Garlic shoots are on hold in cold soil as they wait for temperatures above 5 degrees centigrade or 41 degrees Fahrenheit to activate growth. Clear weeds from the bed so they don't grow too when temperatures allow. This makes it easier to feed the small garlic plants next month. Cover cauliflowers. Curds soon turn brown in cold wet weather. Cover the head over with a leaf or two or use a bit of cardboard to make sure the head is protected and stays white. Cauliflowers don't stand long once the head is formed, so cut and use. Pick and use parsley, sage and thyme. These are all hardy herbs that you can pick through the winter. Don't strip plants if you want them to grow well in the spring. On the veg patch. Step by step, cover and protect. Step 1. Use porous mesh or fleece covers to protect vulnerable crops. This keeps frost damage to a minimum and allows a slightly warmer microclimate to help keep plants growing. Porous covers allow rain through and keep temperatures steadier than under polythene. Weight edges down well. Step 2. This is a good month to put manure or other bulky feeds on beds. 
You don't have to dig this in straight away and worms will do some of the work for you if you give them time. Cover the manure with polythene sheet so the nutrients don't wash away with winter rains. Step 3. The contents of a compost heap should be kept damp, but at this time of year they can be sodden. Use old compost bags to cover the top of an open heap. Don't use old carpet, it can contain pollutants walked in over the years on the soles of shoes. All the colours of chard. Seed for rainbow chard usually contains a mix of red, yellow, pink and white stemmed varieties. This can lead to a colourful collection to pick and eat through the winter months. The problem is that the coloured varieties never grow as well as the white version. Stems are thinner and they just don't grow as prolifically. If you want lots of thick stems and massive leaves, then choose a silver or white Swiss chard variety. You should get lots of pickings right through until April from a June sowing. Cut the large outer stems at the base and work your way inward. Take a few stems from each plant rather than stripping one right back. Winter Cabbages Savoy cabbages can be at their best this month, although they will stand until February in an average winter. Slugs can damage outer leaves, but the firm heads are often left untouched. Peel back a leaf or two if you want a clean cabbage head. Use any looser heads first. These may contain some pests at their heart. Savoys are hardy, but they may survive if frozen or thawed or if buried in snow. If you want to grow Savoy cabbages next year, add them to your seed list now and be ready to sow in May or June. Grow on firm soil for compact heads. Leaf Spot Tackle a plant problem. Spinach, chard and broccoli can all suffer from leaf spot in the winter months. This is a general term for fungal or viral diseases that take advantage of moist spots on leaves. The leaf discolours and tissue dies within the spot and spots can merge, making leaves unusable. The problem is worse if plants are crowded. Thin them out so air can circulate. Pick off the large outer affected leaves and harvest smaller leaves regularly. The problem usually resolves when plants grow new leaves in the spring. Look after tools. Lots of gardeners leave a fork stuck in a pile of manure or a spade in a garden bed. There may even be hoes and trowels littering the ground. Although you may get away with this for the summer months, you will shorten the life of your tools if you leave them outside through the winter. Tools can be stored in a cool, dry shed, but do make sure they're in good condition before you put them away. Take care when handling sharp edges. Clean any mud off the spade and fork heads or off blades and handles. Check if any parts are bent from use and straighten them if you can. Make sure tools are dry. Remove any rust with a wire brush or use a finer abrasive for smaller parts. Oil wooden handles and carefully rub a bit of oil over blades as well. Hang hand tools up or at least put them where you know you can find them. Frost-proof pots. 
Check that ceramic pots and containers are frost-proof if you want to leave them outdoors. Some pots will state this on the base, so you may need another person to lift while you look underneath. If in doubt, then bring containers indoors. A cool porch provides light and shelter for plants. If you have a large container with a fruit bush in it, then at least tuck it against a sheltered house wall and wrap the pot to stop it from cracking as water freezes and expands. Too mild a winter? December isn't the same in all gardens. Some get lots of frost and snow, whereas others barely dip towards zero. Gardeners get used to their own particular local conditions and they work with that to the best of their ability. If the weather is pretty much as expected, then plants follow a predictable pattern. But if temperatures fluctuate in unusual ways, then it can cause problems. An unusually mild December can lead to some plants breaking their winter dormancy. Buds start to burst and shoots grow too early. If the mild conditions persist, then this isn't a problem, but often a cold snap follows, with damaging effects, as temperatures revert to more normal winter levels. You could wrap or cover plants to try to protect them, but more often they just have to take their chances. Rhubarb, for example, may put up new stems and open young leaves in December. These tend to be thinner and weaker than later shoots, and they're liable to die back at the first hard frost or sub-zero temperatures. You can exploit this growth by covering the crown with a large pot to force some tender sweet stems. This gives some early delicious rhubarb, but the plant won't grow as well afterwards. Do it now. Make liquid feed. Put a couple of shovels of manure into a bin and fill with water. Cover the top and stir often until you get a deep brown liquid. Add some seaweed and use tea bags into the brew and you will have a great feed ready to use next month. Check structures and supports. Check around the garden before and after any strong wind. Keep an eye out for anything that is loose or flapping. You may need to knock stakes deeper into the ground or weight down a cold frame lid or cloche cover. Look back through your garden diary. This is a good time to read back through your diary of the garden year. Make a note of what you did well and what you wouldn't repeat. A bit of preparation now can help you get ready for the year ahead. Protect brassicas. Pigeons and rabbits can cause a lot of damage to winter brassicas. Use strong netting and cover plants as best you can. Prolonged sub-zero temperatures will cause leaves to fall. Use crop cover to provide some protection. Enjoy a feast. Pick what vegetables you can and bring out your stored ones too for a winter feast. This is as good a time as any to give yourself a pat on the back and enjoy the fruits of your gardening. Sow now. Sow basil and use any leftover salad seed to sow for microgreens. Grow these indoors on a warm window ledge. Cut and use the small shoots in salads and sandwiches. Plant now. Rhubarb crowns, fruit trees and bushes can all be planted in a mild December. 
Don't plant into frozen ground and stake young trees to avoid windrock. Harvest. Brussels sprouts, cabbages, kale, cauliflower, leeks, swedes, salad leaves, winter lettuce, parsley, sage, thyme, rosemary, chard, spinach and spinach beet. In the Greenhouse with Martin Fish What to do in December From now until spring, water sparingly to keep plants growing, but avoid overwatering and creating wet, soggy conditions. Check over leafy brassica crops for whitefly and use yellow sticky traps or an organic plant-based spray to try and control numbers. Keep on top of all collecting vine leaves as they fall, especially if they are covering plants beneath. Push a hoe through borders around growing veg to chop off any late germinating weed seedlings. Check plants growing in the polytunnel regularly and as soon as you spot any damaged or yellow leaves, pick them off and add to the compost heap. Citrus in the Greenhouse December and over winter is when many citrus plants are at their best and it's the time to start harvesting the fruits. Lemons, limes, oranges and calamondins are now ripe and ready to pick and enjoy. Lemons and limes can be picked more or less at any stage, but with oranges you need to test them to make sure they're sweet. The good thing about all citrus is the fruits will stand on the plants for a long time, so you don't need to pick all in one go. Through winter, maintain light, frost-free growing conditions. I keep my greenhouse at around 7 degrees centigrade or 45 degrees Fahrenheit minimum, and they seem fine. Keep the compost moist and feed fortnightly with a high potash feed. Fresh winter produce. One of the great advantages of growing under cover is that the growing season is extended, but also the crops are protected from extremes of weather and from many pests that can spoil outdoor crops. Winter veg especially does very well under polythene and it's much nicer to harvest in a polytunnel than outside in the pouring rain or a howling gale. Late summer sown and planted veg such as carrots, beetroot, kale, turnips and leeks should still be cropping and in good condition. They're all hardy and don't mind the cold, but the little extra protection from the polytunnel makes all the difference and can greatly improve the quality. It also means the polytunnel is used for all of the year. Start prepping the soil. As soon as I finish clearing crops from the polytunnel, I like to start preparing the ground ready for the new growing season. I won't be sowing or planting until February at the earliest, but it's good to start getting the soil ready. Once the border is clear of old veg plants and any stray weeds, I like to spread a layer of homemade garden compost over the surface. This is then lightly forked or dug into the surface where the worms and the other soil organisms can get to work breaking it down to keep the soil in good condition. The soil is then left until February when it's raked to form a crumbly surface to start planting and sowing. 
finish clearing autumn salads. Fast growing veg and salads that were grown to harvest from September onwards have finished in my polytunnel. The mixed lettuce and the late courgette that I grew have done well, but the combination of colder weather, shorter days and more moisture in the air has done for them. The courgette stopped fruiting several weeks ago and is now collapsing and the lettuce is going slimy in parts. The salad onions would stand winter, but as there's only a few, they can be pulled and kept in the fridge for a while. All the old plant material is soft, so it'll soon rot down when added to the compost heap with the last of the autumn leaves from the garden. Rodent damage Rodents are around in some gardens and allotments all year, but come winter they are more likely to be a problem when searching for food and shelter. Mice will eat newly sown pea and bean seeds, and voles will nibble seedlings and young plants. Rats can be a big problem, and I know of some gardeners that lose so much of their produce to them. In winter they will be after stored root veg, and they will also eat the tops of brassica plants. Not only can mice and rats cause a great deal of damage, they spread diseases. So where they are a problem, they can be controlled with traps or bait. Follow the instructions and use them safely. December tips. From now on, we are likely to start getting heavier frosts, so if you haven't already done it, make sure the outside taps and water pipes are properly insulated to protect them. In periods of severe frost, ideally turn the supply off at the mains. Although it will still freeze in a cold greenhouse or polytunnel, the structure still offers some protection to plants, especially from wet conditions. Use any spare room to bring in containers of borderline hardy plants or potted herbs that will benefit from drier conditions. If you are considering heating a greenhouse to maintain frost-free conditions, think about partitioning a small area off with bubble polythene to keep running costs down. To maintain a fresh, dry atmosphere in a greenhouse or polytunnel, open vents and doors on sunny days for a few hours. The plants will benefit from the exchange of air and keeping the atmosphere on the dry side helps to reduce the risk of fungal infections on plants. If you have one of the hot compost bins, why not bring it into the polytunnel for winter where the extra warmth and protection under cover will help the composting process along. KG Problem Solver Got a fruit or veg problem? Ask KG for help. Why is this wasp eating my beans? From Carol Ward of Devon. Emma says... It is a little unusual. At the end of summer, wasps switch from feeding on live prey to sweet things and so become a real nuisance on fruit crops and also at picnics. They usually enter through wounds caused by other things, such as splits in fruit, bird pecks or diseased patches. However, they are perfectly capable of eating into a bean pod without help and may simply be after sugars or moisture Needing lots of water, they can often be seen drinking from bird baths and ponds. 
Netting the bean should solve the problem, although it will also prevent other pollinators from reaching the flowers. However, at this stage in the season, early autumn, there may not be too many more pods to come. What's wrong with my sweet corn? From Gabby Butler of West Sussex. Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturalist of the RHS. Guy says, This is a sweet corn smut. The fungal bodies are edible and considered a delicacy in Mexico, so they say. The fungal disease is generally sporadic and, if you destroy affected plants and practice crop rotation, it should not cause severe losses in future. There are no fungicide treatments. There are many smut diseases which mainly affect grasses, including cereals, so are a major problem for farmers. They are highly host-specific, in this case to maize, of which sweet corn is one variant. So this smut won't attack other garden plants. I doubt other cobs will be affected. Is this blight from Pam Peart of Northumberland? Steve says. Potato blight causes a very rapid collapse of leaves and stems and often, when affected, tubers are cut open. Black or brown areas can be seen in the flesh which will rapidly deteriorate in storage. Your tubers have split and this is almost certainly due to a sudden influx of water after a dry spell. This would fit with the weather patterns that most of us have experienced this year. Even despite regular watering, it is often difficult to get enough water down to the roots and tubers of potatoes when it is very hot and dry, and it takes a really good downpour to make any impression. Now that most of us have had that, your tubers have expanded rapidly and this has caused the splitting. The good news is that they are perfectly edible. The bad news is that they won't store as well as tubers which were unaffected and it would be best to use these first. Glasshouse Whitefly Your guide to common pests, diseases and other problems affecting your crops with Guy Barter, Chief Horticultural Advisor for the RHS. Not an uncommon pest in the greenhouse, the glasshouse whitefly is one to look out for if you're growing under cover. What is it? Adult glasshouse whitefly, almost all female, are tiny, two millimetres, white delta-shaped moth-like insects whose wings are covered with a white waxy material. Eggs are laid without the need for fertilisation and the resultant sap-sucking nymphs, flat and oval in shape, thrive underneath leaves of a very wide range of plants, including aubergines, cucumbers, melons and peppers. Being a tropical insect, it only affects indoor plants. Symptoms Adult flies take wing when disturbed, leaving nymphs to contaminate the underside of leaves, weakening plants by sucking sap. These secrete sticky honeydew, sugary liquid, which supports moulds with black spores. This sooty mould disfigures plants and weakens them by blocking sunlight. What you can do Greenhouse whitefly life cycle takes just three weeks in hot weather, 
quickly leading to uncontrollable levels. Use yellow sticky traps, checked every day, to help detect whitefly early. When whitefly are detected, order biological controls immediately before they become too numerous to suppress. Although approved insecticides can be used, some whitefly have become resistant to insecticides and the insecticides kill off biological control organisms. The early introduction of the parasitic wasp, Encarsia formosa, can keep whitefly numbers at manageable levels. If the pest multiplies too fast to be controlled, apply contact insecticides. These work by physical action, so the whitefly cannot become resistant and they leave no residues that might harm biological controls. Use every three days and make sure a fine spray covers every part of the plant. Suitable insecticides include those based on oils, soaps or fatty acids and starch. At the end of the growing season, when tomatoes and other crops are over, remove and destroy all plant materials. Greenhouse whitefly can only survive on living plants. Top tip. When buying garden centre tomato and other plants, immerse them in a bucket of contact insecticide to avoid reintroduction in spring. It's all in the planning. Based on his own experience of creating a new garden, Rob Smith emphasises the importance of thinking things through before you start. There's nothing more exciting than getting a new allotment, garden or veg plot. With all the excitement of what you want to grow and build, plus all the ideas of how you'll spend your time in your new found growing space. It's possible to get carried away and create problems in the long run by rushing into things. My main bit of advice when getting a new plot is to think and plan what you want before you start buying or building. I moved house a couple of years ago because we wanted a large garden to grow fruit and veg in. Due to vandals trashing my shed several times and allotment neighbours stealing my harvests, it had got to a point where I needed a safe space where I could grow how I wanted without worrying what state the plot was in every time I turned up at the allotment gates. I was lucky enough to find a garden which was just over a quarter of an acre and only had a few half-dead apple trees in it, so it was pretty much a blank canvas – perfect to convert into a kitchen garden once these were removed. A sloping garden. There was, however, a small problem. It was on a slope. As I didn't want to garden on a slope and have all my mulch rolling down the hill, I had to get a groundworks company in to spend a week moving hundreds of tonnes of soil around to create three large terraces which were flat and easy to garden on. The downside was that all the top soil was then churned up with the solid clay which was underneath it, making growing in the now clay-laden soil almost impossible. We knew from talking with the contractor that we would end up with the terraces we wanted, but would need to grow in raised beds due to the poor soil. Therefore, I suddenly went from growing on a flat allotment in the ground to growing veg almost solely in raised beds in a terraced garden. 
When it came to deciding where to place things in the new garden, I remembered what a friend of mine said. Make sure you plan the biggest things first, as they are the hardest to move if you get it wrong. And she couldn't have been more right. First of all, I need to let you know the slope has the sun baking it all day, as it is south-facing. This will explain why the shed, greenhouse and fruit trees are on the top terrace, even though they are the furthest away from the house. This is because they don't cast shade on any of the plants in the garden. If I had put them on the bottom terrace, the resulting shadows would have shaded the middle terrace completely and limited what I could grow there. Checking for shade To check where buildings or trees will shade is pretty easy as long as you have a long bamboo cane and a tennis ball. Make sure the cane is as tall as the shed or tree you want to put in a certain place. Then cut a hole in the ball and slide it on the top of the cane. Next, put the cane in the ground where you want the shed or tree and you will see it causes a shadow with the ball on the top. This lets you see what parts of the plot the potential shadow will cover. Do this early in the morning and every one to two hours go and put a brick or other type of marker on top of where the ball's shadow is. By the end of the day, you will see a line of bricks and you can lay a piece of rope along them to show the space which will be shaded by the new shed or tree. Then you can decide if you need to move it or if you can live with the shadow it casts. Remember that in the winter, shadows are even longer. Raised beds Next up came the raised beds. I must admit I love them compared with gardening in the ground as it's so much easier on my back. That aside, there are a couple of choices when choosing raised beds. Mainly, how high you want them and what they're made of. I had a couple of one-plank-high raised beds on the allotment and they were great to keep manure or compost from spilling onto the paths. But in my new garden, I needed deeper beds to hold enough soil and compost to grow healthy, productive plants before the roots hit the moisture-retentive clay further down. Luckily, I managed to find a guy on eBay who had more than 100 powder-coated metal raised beds for sale at a very reasonable price, so I decided to use them. They can still be bought from other companies, but sadly not at the same price he was charging. Raised beds can be created from planks with great success. However, I didn't want to have to spend time treating them each year with preservative, which is why I went for the metal ones. If you're thinking that metal beds may scorch plant roots, I must say that in the three seasons I've grown in them, I have never had a noticeable problem. Deciding where to place your raised beds is another decision to take care with. Remember, they will make turning a wheelbarrow more difficult, so you need to leave about 90 centimetres or 3 foot between beds or walls or fences for a path. This may seem wide, but once you have a few plants growing over the side of the beds, you need that space to walk without damaging them. Topsoil Next comes the soil to fill the beds, and my tip is to buy the best you can afford, as soil is the base of every harvest you will grow. I went for a double-screen topsoil, as I wanted the soil in the beds to emulate the actual soil in the ground. 
I then added manure and some spent hops from my local microbrewery and sand to help with drainage. All this was mixed up in the beds and then left to settle for a few weeks before being topped up again. This is because you will find the soil level can drop by about half as it settles in the raised beds. Finally came the paths between the beds. The cheapest paths can be grass. Just seed them and let the grass grow, but it will take considerable time to mow them all in the summer and lugging lawn mowers to the allotment can be a nightmare. On the other end of the spectrum, you could have the paths block paved. I must admit these look stunning, but sadly my budget didn't stretch to that, so I went for gravel. I laid a double layer of weed membrane first, then a thick layer of pea gravel between all the beds, 15 tonnes to be exact. The gravel was retained with gravel boards to stop it all sliding down the banks between the terraces. I decided to use the sloping banks between the terraces to grow flowers and ornamental plants, plus a few globe artichokes and comfrey plants. These help to attract beneficial insects to the kitchen garden, which will pollinate all the fruit and veg. Now you have the bones of your veg garden mapped out with buildings, sheds and trees that won't shade your veg, plus beds created or built where you want them and filled with good quality growing medium. Now all you need to do is decide what veg you want to grow in each bed. However, that's a whole other discussion for another day. Happy planning and happy gardening. Caring for our feathered friends It's that time of year when we can do our bit to help birds when their food is scarce. Emma Rawlings looks at feeding birds and encouraging them onto our plots. Fruit and veg gardeners are often nature lovers too and we live alongside our feathered friends well. There are one or two exceptions that cause the veggie gardener some pain but generally we can protect our crops against these marauders. On the whole, the positives of having birds on the plot far outweigh the negatives. Many of the bird visitors to the veg plot will help keep pest numbers down, so on balance, encouraging birds is a great thing to do and will benefit us and them. Birds you may see while most birds we see in our gardens and allotments are to be welcomed, we have to be on our guard for a few of them. Robin. The robin is the gardener's buddy. Once you start turning soil, it isn't long before you may see a robin waiting for its moment to grab any insects and worms you have disturbed. To have a robin sit on your fork handle when you take a rest from digging is a delight. Robins may eat a few worms, but they also eat beetles, some of which may be pests. House sparrows. These are in decline in some areas and need our help. They are partial to seeds, but during the spring and summer, when feeding their young, they will catch aphids and caterpillars, a gardener's friend indeed. Song thrush. If you spot a stone with a load of snail shells around it, then you know you have a regular song thrush visiting your allotment or garden. And what a great service they are providing, helping to control snail numbers on your plot. Dunnock. 
the little plain brown bird hopping around the base of hedges, and your bird table is likely to be a dunnock. It eats insects, but also grass, nettle, and weed seeds. Anything eating weed seeds has to be encouraged. Blue tits. These and many of the tit family will eat peanuts and food from our bird tables, but they also devour insects and spiders, and their tiny beaks mean they can get in the smallest crevice to search for an insect or larvae. They're particularly fond of caterpillars when they have young to feed, and will find a vast number to keep their brood growing well, thus helping the gardener by keeping these pest numbers down. Blackbirds. These are rather partial to fruit, such as blueberries and strawberries, and so these crops will require covering with netting just as they ripen. If you have enough land and fruit crops, you could leave one or two plants out of the net for the birds to feed on. Like the song thrush, blackbirds eat insects and snails, and so are also helpful in the garden. Starlings. These eat a variety of different feeds, but their long beak is particularly good at extracting grubs from the ground. Finches. Chaffinches, greenfinches, bullfinches and goldfinches are predominantly seed-eaters, but are similar to house sparrows in that they may take invertebrates during the summer months. Pigeons. These are the main bird pests for veggie growers. They can decimate newly planted cabbages and broccoli and other brassicas in minutes. Apart from the cabbage white butterflies, these birds are the main reason we really have to cover these crops with nets as soon as they emerge or are planted out. Bullfinches These beautiful birds unfortunately love to eat buds, especially flower buds off your fruit trees and bushes in spring. So if this is a problem, fruit cages can be used. Currently, there are not vast numbers of bullfinches, so it may not be an issue, especially if there's plenty of food from other native trees and shrubs in the area. They do take seeds and insects too. How to encourage birds When we grow crops that attract pests, then we are providing food for the birds. If we can also encourage birds to the plot by feeding them with seeds and proprietary bird feed, they may also take a few pests in the vicinity, which has to be good. What to feed? Small seed mixes are good and you'll see different ones suitable for ground feeding or for the tubular feeds. Look for those containing sunflowers. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Seeds and peanut granules as these are very popular. The cheaper mixes do tend to have more beans and split pea seeds in them, which are too big for most of the small birds, and just add bulk. The more expensive seed feeds also produce less mess and fewer germinating seeds beneath your feeders. If you're on a budget, a peanut feeder is good, as they feed a lot of different species. But they do seem to last a bit longer than the seed mixes. Do buy peanuts only from reputable bird feed companies because peanuts can contain a toxin. Avoid putting peanuts, especially loose ones, out in spring and summer at a time when there are more chicks around as they could cause a choking hazard. A variety of feeds is good, including some mealworms too, which some of the birds will love, especially robins and blue tits. The tiny black niger seed has a very high oil content, but requires a special feeder with tiny holes in it. Goldfinches love this, and once they find the feeder, expect squabbling, chattering flocks of these colourful birds, which are so entertaining. The fat balls are also good value, and an excellent winter food for birds. Avoid hanging up the fat balls that come in nylon mesh bags. Birds can get their feet caught in these. It is better to remove the fat balls from the nets and place in a special feeder. Making your own fat balls If making your own fat balls or seed and fat mixes, use only pure lard or beef suet. These re-solidify after warming if you want to put them into a mould. Cooking fat from roasting tins is not good as it is contaminated with meat juices. This fat is prone to smearing and is not good for birds' feathers. Plus, it could be high in salt. Kitchen scraps for feeding. Fat from cuts of meat can be put out, but bacon rind can be a bit too salty. Bread is not great in large quantities, but better than nothing if food is really scarce in the depths of winter. It is better if soaked, and brown bread is better than white. Only a small amount should be put out, and preferably with a choice of other feed as well, such as seed mixes. A little pastry, cooked or uncooked, is also fine to put out. Mild grated cheese is popular with robins, dunnocks and song thrushes, but note it can be salty, so not too much. Cold baked potatoes can be put on the table, as can dried fruits, but watch out if you have cats or dogs, as some of these fruits could be harmful to them. Cut up apples and other fruit that have gone over and put on the bird table. Provide water. This is often overlooked, but obviously important when feeding birds. It is not only vital for drinking, but also keeping their feathers in tip-top condition. In the depths of winter on icy days, it is particularly important to put fresh water out regularly for the birds. Top tip. Don't be too tidy in the garden. Leave seed heads on sunflowers and other crops. 
Also, leave some fallen fruit for birds to eat. Apples and pears are really popular with blackbirds, thrushes and starlings. Still to come, top tips on growing your own for a sensational salsa. The young grower reveals his method for raising sweet peas. And the last word from a student who took his first gardening steps thanks to lockdown. But first, cue the cucurbits. We grow a lot of crops that are in the cucurbitaceae family. Emma Rawlings takes a look at this group of fruits, how they are related and offers tips on growing them. This plant family is vast, with 95 genera, genus, and within these are 965 species. This family includes a fascinating mix of plants, many of which are annual vines. But the family is so diverse, there are woody plants in the mix too. As far as veggie growers are concerned, there really is only a tiny number that are important, and so as much as the botany is interesting, it is only necessary to get a rough understanding of how they are related. Cucurbits produce fruits, but we tend to use them more as vegetables, with the exception of the melon. Some are also known as gourds in the strict classification of the family, but we tend to generalise and often call the inedible ones gourds and the edible ones squashes. Botanically, this is not really accurate, but for our purposes, it does help make sense of a complex family. Familiar cucurbits. Cucurbita. This is the genus in the Cucurbitaceae family that gives us the most edible crops, or squashes, as we like to call them. Within this genus are a few species, such as Cucurbita pepo, Cucurbita moscata and Cucurbita maximus, which have been bred and crossbred to give us a whole variety of different coloured and shaped edible squashes we see in our seed catalogues. These can be divided into two types, either winter or summer squashes. The winter squashes tend to mature with a hardened skin, which means we can store them for a few months over winter before eating. Examples of these include butternut, e.g. Cucurbita muscata hunter F1, pumpkin and potimarron onion squash, the summer squashes generally have softer skins and need eating pretty much straight away when ripe. These include the courgettes and patty pans or scallop squashes. More unusual cucurbits. Cucamelon. This scrambling plant that bears tiny fruits has the Latin name of Melothria scabra. The fruits are grape-sized and look like miniature watermelons. The taste is of cucumber with a hint of sweetness. They are great trained up a wigwam of canes and produce a lot of fruit. Calabash or doody. These are also known as bottle gourds and are in the genus Lagoneria in the Cucurbitaceae family. They can be eaten but only when the fruits are very young. If left to mature, they can be harvested and carved or scooped out and dried to make musical instruments or water carriers. These are rampant scrambling plants that produce the most exquisite white flowers, followed by the fruit. 
In parts of Africa, this is a really important food source, and the young plant shoots are even eaten in curries. In the West, we tend to grow them as a curiosity, and you may find a couple of popular Lagoneria sold as calabash gourd or snake gourds. Non-edibles Gourds and luffa Gourd is a name that, botanically speaking, can include edible and non-edible cucurbits, but it has been rather adopted as a name given to non-edible fruits which have hard skins. They are often dried and used as ornaments or even elaborately carved. Many seed companies list gourds to be grown as a curiosity, but not eaten. Loofah is another example of a cucurbit you may see in the catalogues, and Loofah aegyptiaca is grown for its use as a loofah. Although edible, when the fruits are really small, it is not usually grown as an edible, but rather to make washing pads for skin and natural scourers for cleaning dishes. Get growing. How to grow. The cucurbits we grow for food, plus the ornamental loofah and gourds, are from warmer parts of the world, and so they are susceptible to frost damage. We need to start off these crops with a little heat. When to sow. Most are sown in spring, usually around April, but they can be sown any time between March and May for the quicker maturing types, such as courgette. The winter squashes, which need a long growing season, need to be sown mid-March to April to ensure they have a long enough growing season. In some parts of the country, such as northern Britain, a warm polytunnel will offer some protection and help them keep growing a little longer. Sow the seed into small pots or cell trays filled with multi-purpose compost and place in a propagator or on a warm windowsill indoors. As soon as a sign of growth is seen, quickly reduce the heat on the propagator or move to a cooler spot. This is a critical point, as if it's too warm with not enough light at this stage, it is very easy to get a really tall, leggy seedling that is weak and topples over in just a matter of hours. Growing on In many areas of the country, if starting them off in April, they can be moved into an unheated greenhouse, cold frame or polytunnel once they have emerged, and then grow them on slightly slower and harder to create a sturdy plant. Hardening off By late May to early June, the plants can be placed outside during the day and put back in a cold frame or covered with fleece at night for a few days. Then early to late June, depending on the part of country that you live, you can plant out. Planting out. Cucurbits generally like a nutrient-rich soil that holds moisture well, so if possible, dig some well-rotted manure or compost into the soil before planting. For the scrambling trailing squashes, put a cane in when you plant. This will help you direct water to the correct spot should you need to water in the summer. Harvesting. The summer squashes we grow tend to mature quickly from a spring sowing and can be ready to harvest in July and August. The winter squashes take longer and are often only ready to harvest in October. The Cucurbitaceae family tree, also known as gourd or cucurbit family. Genus. Cucurbit. 
species. C. pepo, C. maximus, C. muscata. And these include winter and summer squashes. Genus Laginaria, species Cicerarea. These include calabash, which is bottle gourd. Genus Citrullus, species C. lanatus, and these include watermelons. Genus Melothria, species M. scabra. These include cucumelons. Genus Cucumis, species C. savitus, C. mellow. These include cucumbers, gherkins, and melon. Genus Luffa, species Elagipitaca, and these include Luffa. Sensational salsa. Fresh and spicy salsas are a centerpiece to many Mexican inspired feasts. Prepare your own from ingredients you've grown yourself and prepare to turn up the dial on taste. Promises Benedict Van Heems. Tongue tingling salsas are typically served as an ideal counterpoint to crisp and crunchy nachos, yet they have the potential to liven up just about anything fish, beans, egg dishes, and of course Mexican favourites like tacos and enchiladas. Originally prepared by the Mayan peoples of Mexico and Central America, salsa has spread far and wide to conquer the hearts, minds and taste buds of food lovers across the globe. Some foods are definitely worth making a fuss over, and a refreshing salsa is one of them. Grow the ingredients in your garden or allotment, and the power is in your green fingers to prioritise flavour above all else. Then, when you come to use that produce to make a homemade salsa, you can expect something truly sensational. Forget mean-sized supermarket imitations. Your salsa will stand in a league of its own, an absolute taste explosion. What makes a salsa? As with any popular recipe, there's no shortage of opinions on what makes the perfect salsa. The word salsa is Spanish for sauce, and certainly the earliest salsas would have had more of a sauce-like consistency, pounded from a combination of peppers, chilies, onions, and either tomatoes or tomatillos, a distant relative of the tomato. Today's salsas are chunkier affairs, with additional ingredients often joining the party, including garlic, coriander and lime, or lemon juice for a touch of acidity. And then there are the multitude of variants, like sweet corn salsa, guacamole salsa, containing avocado, and herb-heavy salsa verde. The line has to be drawn somewhere, so for the purposes of this article, let's look at the staples to a basic, though nonetheless exceptional, tomato salsa. Onion, garlic, chilies, coriander, and of course the star of the show, the tomato. Onion. The best salsas are slightly piquant. Onions, usually red onions, help with that. If you're listening to this magazine early enough, there may just be about time to get some autumn planting onion sets into the ground. 
Plant them before the middle of November into weed-free, fertile soil that has been raked to a fine tilth. Leave about 10 centimetres or 4 inches between sets and 30 centimetres or 12 inches between rows. Newly planted sets may need covering with horticultural fleece until they have rooted to stop birds from lifting them out of the ground. If you've missed the boat, don't worry. Wait until spring to plant sets or sow under cover from January to produce sturdy seedlings for planting out in April. Growing from seed adds another step to the process, but on the flip seed is cheaper and often gives bigger, better bulbs. Garlic Onions need full sun to flourish and so does garlic. Now is the time to plant it, with the colder weather still to come actually helping garlic to do its thing. Start with garlic bulbs sold specifically for planting. Supermarket garlic may be cheaper, but it won't necessarily give the results you are hoping for and could harbour disease. There are many different varieties to try, some mild, others less so, and half the fun lies in discovering the weird and wonderful, though always tasty. Break up bulbs into individual cloves, then plant them, 15 centimetres or 6 inches apart, leaving 30 centimetres or 12 inches between additional rows. Well-drained soil is best, but if your soil usually remains wet and claggy for much of the winter, you can always plant cloves into modules or pots of multi-purpose compost to plant out in once conditions improve in spring. Plant the cloves so the tip lies about 2 centimetres or 1 inch beneath the soil surface. This should keep them hidden from the prying eyes and beaks of the local bird population. But once the shoots nudge through, have some fleece to hand just in case. Chilies. The gentle burn that comes with a chilli or two makes all the difference between a good salsa and an outstanding salsa, in my opinion anyhow. If you prefer a subtler salsa, you could always opt for a mild variety of chilli, leave out the chilli or plump for a pepper instead, which is grown in the same way. Sow chilli seeds indoors towards the end of winter. A heated propagator is handy, but by no means essential. I start mine off in pots of seed compost that are then covered with a freezer bag, secured in place by an elastic band. Popped onto a warm windowsill, this raises the temperature and humidity enough to ensure germination within ten days. Once they're up and big enough to handle, prick the seedlings out into their own 10 centimetre or 4 inch pots of multi-purpose compost to continue growing on a sunny windowsill. Move them into a greenhouse once you can be sure nighttime temperatures won't plunge too low. Pop them on into a larger pot when you can see the roots at the drainage holes. Chilies grow well enough in the ground outside. Reserve them the warmest, sunniest spot in the garden, but will do even better in good-sized containers at least a foot wide and deep. Potted chilies give flexibility to move them onto a sun-trap patio or to perhaps bring them back into a greenhouse or cold frame whenever the weather is disappointingly dull, cool or incessantly rainy, which, let's face it, can be pretty often. Tomatoes 
Warmth and sunshine are winning ingredients for tomatoes too, and both tomatoes and chilies are also more productive when fed once a fortnight with a liquid tomato feed starting the moment the first flowers appear. They may be sun worshippers, but that doesn't mean they don't need a good drink to keep their cool. So check soil or compost daily and water if it's dry. Sow and grow on tomatoes in the same way as chilies. Greenhouse-grown tomatoes avoid the nervous risk of tomato blight, which can strike with little notice, collapsing rows of once healthy plants to a sorry fungal mess in a matter of days. This summer, the blight struck late in September, ensuring a meaningful harvest before the curtains came down. Perhaps I was lucky, or maybe foolhardy. If you have a greenhouse, use it. The risk of blight is reduced, and the extra warmth should shift the harvest forward by up to a month. Bush tomatoes benefit from being tied in to a sturdy stake to keep them off the ground, but aside from that, there's no trimming, pruning, or preening required. Vining or indeterminate types will need vertical supports and regular pinching out of side shoots to keep things on track. Some varieties are well suited to salsas. Larger plum tomatoes are a logical choice, having very few seeds and plenty of flesh. Widely available varieties include Roma and San Mozzano, but include a classic salad tomato for its juiciness too. Coriander. Finally, there's coriander, a herb like marmite. You either love it or hate it. This strong polarization can be put down to a cruel quirk of genetics, which means that for some people, coriander tastes like soap. If coriander leaves you like you've had your mouth washed out, just swap it for oregano or basil. Sow coriander in batches so you'll always have a supply of fresh leaves to hand. It grows best in full sun, but does very well in part-shaded areas of the garden too. And in a very hot summer, even relishes somewhere shady. It can bolt, run to seed, early on in the summer, but from midsummer onwards reliably produces masses of leaves. Sow from April and thin the seedlings in stages. You can use the thinnings until plants are 25 centimetres or 10 inches apart. Pick little and often as required. Time it right. Timing is of the essence. If you have designs on an entirely homegrown, homemade salsa, tomatoes and chilies are likely to be your bottleneck, being latest to mature in a typical summer. Choose reliable, early maturing varieties to increase the chances of a harvest before the end of August. Onions and garlic are usually ready from the middle of summer and you can always harvest them early to use fresh. The only other ingredient, often added to salsa, is a splash of something acidic, a dash of lemon or lime juice or a tablespoon or two of red wine vinegar. By all means, grow a lemon on the patio. It can be done, but you'll be forgiven for adding a couple of supermarket ingredients if you need to.
By next summer, you will be tucking into the very definition of fresh, a burst of flavours seldom experienced by those unaccustomed to growing their own. Start salivating, start looking forward. Savour the sensational salsa. Fresh Garden Salsa You'll need two cloves of garlic, finely chopped, half a red onion, finely chopped, one chilli, finely chopped, six standard or four large tomatoes, chopped, a small bunch of coriander, and the juice of a quarter to half a lemon to taste. Leave the chopped tomatoes to drain for half an hour so the salsa isn't watery. Combine all of the ingredients in a bowl, adjusting quantities according to preference. Feel free to swap the lemon juice for red wine vinegar or turn down the heat by adding just half a chilli. Chopped peppers make a welcome optional extra, adding further texture. Refrigerate any salsa that's not immediately been devoured for up to three days. Tart Tomatillos Tomatoes will always be winners, but it's well worth trying easy-to-grow tomatillos too. In fact, the pleasingly tart fruits are the perfect complement to sweeter tomatoes. Both belong to the nightshade family, though with their papery husks they're more closely related to the Cape gooseberry. Sow the seeds in April and grow them on like tomatoes in a warm and sunny position. The lolloping branches are quite fragile, so work around the plants with care. Thankfully, they do not need any pruning or training. Harvest the prolific fruits, which are usually green or purple, once they have filled their husks. They're available from Sutton's. Phone number 0344 326 2200 or from online www.suttons.co.uk Salsa Verde this green salsa is a fantastic way of using up stubbornly unripe tomatoes at the end of the season. Serve it with fish, eggs, beans or drizzle over a steaming pile of greens. 10 green tomatoes or 12 to 15 tomatillos halved. 2 green chilies de-seeded. 1 red onion roughly chopped. 2 cloves of garlic. The juice of 2 limes a generous bunch of coriander and salt. Bake the green tomatoes or tomatillos in a medium oven, about 180 degrees Celsius, until they start to soften and colour. Transfer them to a blender along with the remaining ingredients and blitz to desired consistency. Add salt to taste. Sweet peas by the pint. An enthusiastic grower of sweet peas, the young grower Ben Thornton gives his particular method for producing beautiful blooms. Sweet peas are a main part of my garden. As I write this, I can just imagine walking through my archway at the allotment and getting the smell of heaven. For me, sweet peas have become a real statement piece that I couldn't be without and they're so easy to grow. Perfect for an abundance of cut flowers, fragrant sweet peas come in a wide range of exquisite colours that make anyone passing by stop for a look and, of course, a cheeky sniff. 
You can grow them in pots or in the ground, training them up an arch, frame or bamboos for a beautiful display that won't disappoint. Plant sweet peas near a seating area so you can smell them as you sit and relax in the garden, taking in all your hard work. I personally like to grow them on an archway as this gives you the most amazing aroma when you enter your garden or you could pick some for the vase. The smallest amount can fill a room with fragrance. My neighbour grew them in her greenhouse one year. They got so big they were coming out of the cracks in the old greenhouse. Let's just say the smell when the wind was coming my way was amazing. But don't be put off if you don't like the scent, as you can get sweet peas without any fragrance. My fiancé hates the smell. As you can imagine, that has not stopped me growing the most fragrant varieties I can find. Pint Cups I grow my sweet peas in plastic pint cups for an abundance of fresh sweet peas. Sweet peas can be sown between September and November or January to April. Get some plastic pint cups and have your pea seeds at the ready. You now need to make holes in the bottom of the pint cups. Please be careful when you do this. Heat up a screwdriver and push it through the bottom of the cup. Do this two or three times for drainage and for watering. Sewing. Now get a mushroom crate or tray. If it has holes, cover it with a piece of plastic, a compost bag for example. This will create a reservoir, making it very easy to water. Start filling the cups up with compost 2.5 centimetres or 1 inch from the top. Once filled, get a pencil and make three holes to a depth of about 5 to 7 centimetres or 2 to 2 and 3 quarter inches. Drop one seed in each hole and then cover using a pencil or finger. Now write out labels so you don't forget what varieties you've sown. Place the sweet pea in their overwintering position in the greenhouse, polytunnel or cold frame. Give them a good watering from the top and you will then notice the reservoir is starting to fill up. This is a good thing as it will keep the soil moist. Keep moist. Over the next couple of months, make sure the soil is always damp and don't let the cups dry out. If all seeds germinate, you can remove the weak seedlings or leave them all in like I do and plant them out how they are, multi-sowing. When plants are 10 centimetres or 4 inches tall, pinch out the tips to encourage bushy growth. If you leave more than one plant, then I would recommend you start feeding with a weak mixture of organic, general-purpose plant feed in late winter or early spring. I use Natural Grower Liquid Fertiliser, which you can get from naturalgrower.co.uk. The final stages. Plant out in mid-spring on an arch, frame or bamboos, anything you think they could climb up. Once flower buds start to appear, feed your plants with an organic high potash fertiliser, like tomato feed or natural grower liquid fertiliser. Keep well watered. You may need to tie up the sweet peas before they get established to help them climb. As soon as flowers appear, start picking and do this once a week to allow them to flower throughout the season. Always remove seed pods to encourage more blooms. The Pint Cup Method I originally got the Pint Cup Planting Method from www.facebook.com Dean's Lost the Plot and I adapted it to my needs. 
Now I use this method to start my edible peas and many other plants too. All the pint cups I used last year still have a couple of years of life left. They seem to be stronger than most other plastic plant pots I've bought and a lot cheaper. I'm hoping this will encourage you to grow some sweet peas for the first time or even try out a new method of growing them. Sweet Pea History Sweet peas, Lathyrus odoratus, originate from Sicily, Italy, where they grew wild. In 1699, the sweet aroma and simple but beautiful blooms made a big impression on a Sicilian monk, who sent seeds to many different plant collectors and botanical institutes around the world. Because Francisco Cupani sent out those seeds, we have had centuries of growing and breeding to make the sweet peas we love so much today. Just imagine if the monk from Sicily had never sent those seeds. Would we have the sweet pea many growers cherish so dearly? His favourite variety was Cupani's original, which is still grown today with profuse, powerfully scented pink and burgundy flowers on a bushy plant stretching up to 1.5 to 1.8 metres, or 5 to 6 foot. The sweet pea burst into mainstream cultivation in the 17th century, and now they bloom all over the world. Find me. To learn more, find me on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube, where I'll be making videos for this method. Just search for The Young Grower. Last word. Spring onions to the rescue. Suffering under furlough and the restrictions of lockdown, kitchen garden reader Alex Deacon finds solace in spring onions. I'd barely finished my dinner when my housemate burst through the flat door. She was looking tired and defeated. It had been a difficult week in the house for us all. We're all recent graduates, spreading our wings and actually doing paid work in the arts. Over the past two days, we'd been furloughed, let go or become surplus to business requirements. She'd had a call from a family member who had heard that a lockdown might be enforced by the UK government that very night. It's something we were expecting to hear, but we weren't ready for it to become a reality. I spooned another lump of pasta into my mouth, threw the rest in the bin and went upstairs to call home. Mom, I think I should come back to weather this out. Mum agreed, and suddenly I was packing a large suitcase and buying the next train ticket out of St Pancras Station to Nottingham. It was the quietest train I've ever journeyed on. Usually at this time it was full of long-haul commuters, catching the first cheap train back to the regions. I stared out the dark windows, knowing that I probably wouldn't be needing the return ticket. Within a few days I'd reverted to my younger self. Mum was doing everything for me, and I hadn't got to wait my turn for the washing machine or indeed the drying rack. However, we were enjoying good sunshine for the time of year. I'd noticed our garden was quite nice, a gentle medicine to the devastating news and pictures on the TV. It was no surprise that when I made a short journey to the local DIY shop that they'd fresh run out of seeds. I was left with only a packet of lamb's lettuce and chives. I bought them, reluctantly, and headed home. My mum grumbled and went through a list of plants and flowers I'd not heard of and asked if they had them in. No. 
There were only these, I promise. And what even is an allium? Mum's cooking is good, but unimaginative. I asked if she could pick up some spring onions next time she went shopping. She agreed, but said they were often wasted, so I'd better use them up this time. I made a point of trying to fit them into every meal I could. Dad said he didn't like them, but my selective hearing came into play. Then Mum told me that you can regrow spring onions easily, simply by planting the bit you throw away into moist compost. This isn't exactly high horticulture, but it's been the catalyst for me to get involved in the garden, taking my mind off unemployment and impending doom. The spring onions regrew quickly, and within a day or two, the middle of the stem was pushing through. We bought another couple of bunches from the shop, this time being selective. Only the best made it into the trolley. Every meal and sandwich included bits of chopped spring onion. Dad's had to learn to like spring onions and bear my enthusiasm for putting them in everything we eat. Having saved the last two centimetres of the bulb on our onions, we've planted around 30 and they're all growing well. We've now eaten those, replanted and regrown the bulbs. It's a never-ending cycle of the versatile, easy-to-grow spring onion. Rich in vitamin C and calcium and with shallow roots, they can crowd into pots easily, growing tall and strong together. The basic trick, or basic planting, has had me spending quality time with Mum and I'm focused on a practical and rewarding activity. I won't be winning any accolades for my gardening knowledge yet, but I sure now know my alliums. Thank you for listening to the audio edition of the December 2020 issue of Kitchen Garden magazine. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to Kitchen Garden Prime for just 4 99 per month. You'll be getting a whole lot for your plot, including an easy read tablet and phone edition to read anywhere, anytime. Exclusive access to 10 years of digital back issue archives, access to exclusive content from the online allotment, the Mudcuteers website, Plus, the monthly print magazine will be delivered free to your door each month. Head to classicmagazines.co.uk forward slash KG Prime to sign up today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.